All right, folks, we're back in uh, Genesis chapter 8 today. I'm sure that you'll agree that the world in which we live is a dark and evil and wicked place. Every day we're bombarded with news that demonstrate that truth. But at the same time, a lot of good is going on in the world. We just don't hear about it. For instance, today is the Lord's Day. And millions of Christians all over the world are gathering to worship God. We don't see them. Never comes on a newscast. The fellowship of the saints is going to be enjoyed and appreciated The word of God is going to be preached. Many people will be delivered from their sins and come to know Christ as their Savior. But imagine living in a day where nobody can entertain even the thought of God in their mind. That every inclination of their heart is only evil all the time. And that's what it was like in the days of Noah. He and his family, consisting only of eight people, were the last ones left on the whole face of the earth who still followed God. Humanity had become so perverse and violent and corrupt that God had to destroy it and start all over again. And his intention was to wipe the world clean and begin anew with Noah, who in a sense is a second Adam. Now, Genesis 7 described for us the flood of waters that prevailed upon the earth for 150 days until all human and animal life perished. But while the heavens poured down the rain, the the fountains under the earth were, were spewing up geysers of water, the wind and the waves were uh, wreaking havoc and roaring and uh, showing forth their destructive power. Noah was safe in the ark. In chapter 7, verse 23, only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. But he was not yet delivered. He was safe. Chapter 8 now reveals the rest of the story, how God delivered the faithful few. And this theme is a thread that runs throughout all of Scripture. In wrath, God remembers mercy. He delivers those who place their faith in him, their trust in him, in the direst of circumstances. His deliverance is something sometimes physical, but but most importantly, it is spiritual. Now, Noah escaped the judgment of humanity's sin because he believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So let's dive into this passage, pun intended, and unveil some truths about God and the faithful remnant that he delivers. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful that even though present-day humanity is wicked and sinful, you still have found a way to forgive us. And Lord, all that's pictured in the first few chapters of the book of Genesis. Our depravity is there. Our uh, deserving judgment is there. The fact that you carried out your judgment is there. But Lord, your mercy and your grace are upon one family who remained faithful to you. And you carried them through the flood. You delivered them. And you started all over again 
preserving your godly seed, of whom even those today who exercise faith in Christ are members. So Lord, bless us with these thoughts today. Help us to realize that as you delivered Moses from corruption and destruction, that you deliver us today as well. Bless us as we look to your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a few things here I want you to see from this passage in relationship to God and his faithful remnant. And the first thing we find, just the very first uh, verse, really, of chapter 8, is this, that God is always mindful of the faithful. Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. God is always mindful of the faithful. Now, this word, remember, does not suggest that God ever forgot about Noah. It doesn't simply mean uh, to recall to mind as we think of it today. It indicates fulfillment of a past commitment or promise on God's part. That God is remembering Noah in the sense that he's going to now fulfill his promise, his word to Noah when all this uh, began uh, in previous time. And it's a word that conveys to us God's covenant responsibility. That when he makes an agreement, when he promises something, He's always going to keep his word. He can't go back on his word. He's always faithful in keeping his commitments to us. Even though we may fail, he never does. Now, back in chapter 6, as God unveiled his will in this whole situation, in verse 18, notice what he said. He said to Noah, I will establish my covenant with you. I'll establish my covenant with you. He doesn't yet reveal fully what that's going to be, but he makes a promise. And if Noah is not saved through all this, if Noah's not delivered, how can the Lord make a covenant with him? So the Lord is remembering his words about a covenant, and now he's going to make sure that that's going to uh, follow through. He begins the process of reversing the effects of the flood so Noah and his family can leave the ark and this covenant can be created. Now let's take some time and look at the evidences here of God's remembrance in the next few verses. First of all, we find that he sends a wind. God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters begin to subside through evaporation. Now, what's interesting here is the the term wind. Now, you've learned that this particular word can be translated in different ways, depending on the context. It can mean wind. It can mean breath. It also can mean spirit. So if you go back to chapter 1, verse 2, and as God created that, that, that watery substance from which he brought forth the earth, what was operating on it? The same word, his spirit, ruah. So the spirit was working to bring about the original creation. Now the wind that comes from God is making sure the recreation is going to to pull through. That the new world is going to come out of all of this. So kind of an interesting 
uh, parallel to the original creation. And then we see that the floodwaters gradually are receding. They're going down. They're going down. Now, in verse 2, we're reminded that the fountains of the deep and the windows of, of heaven were also stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained. Now, in the, in the Hebrew, that indicates that these things had stopped after the original 40 days. God closed off the, the uh, waters from the depth and uh, the waters coming down from the heights of heaven. And, and the Lord is... is uh, uh, winding things up here. <clears throat> now, the waters continue to prevail, though, beyond that 40 days for another 110 days. In chapter 7, verse 24, the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days. That's five full months. And uh, exactly five months after the flood began, the ark comes to rest on the mountains of Ararat in verse 4. Now, verse 3 says, The waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the water decreased. Now, that's a, an additional 150 days for the waters to flow off of the earth and, uh, and uh, the, the new uh, family be able to uh, populate it. Then the ark rested in the seventh month, the 17th day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. Okay, so this is exactly five months from the day the flood began. That was the second month, the 17th day. Now it's the seventh month, the 17th day. So 150 days. And the ark comes to rest in this mountain range that still exists today on the border of Turkey and Armenia the highest peak being Mount Ararat, 17,000 feet. Now, many expeditions have uh, attempted to discover the ark, haven't they? But we really haven't been successful in doing that. But you know what? For you and I, it doesn't really make any difference. The biblical record is true, whether they ever find it or not. And if you're a skeptic, it's not going to change your mind anyways. But nevertheless, we find that the ark came to rest. Uh, verse 4. Now, there's another interesting term because the verb rested ties in with Noah's name and the statements of hope that were made concerning him from his father Lamech back in chapter 5. Remember, he hoped that some kind of comfort would come through his son. So here is really the unusual fulfillment of that hope. The human race is preserved through Noah, and they come to rest uh, toward the end of the flood period, and the ark is just on this mountainside. Wickedness has been wiped away, and humanity has now a fresh start and a new hope through Noah, whose name means rest. Now, from this point... The waters receded for another two and a half months in which uh, more of the mountaintops become visible. Verse 5. <clears throat> and the waters decreased continually until the 10th month. In the, uh, the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. 
So he could kind of peek out that window and, and see that uh, the waters were beginning to recede and the higher elevations were, were appearing. Uh, so through all of this, well, you know what? Let's take a moment here and think about uh, what's going on here. You might wonder, where did all the water go? <clears throat> now, we can't go into a great bit of detail, and I think next Sunday afternoon maybe we'll look at, at a film in relationship to this. But it's likely uh, that, that before the flood, there was much more land than is on the surface of the world today. And these subterranean water sources were, were emptied out as they spewed up from the ground. And they then uh, created great basins that the floodwaters probably would have crushed down the, the earth's uh, surface or crust and pushed it down so that it created all the ocean bases and the sea bases that we have today. And some of these great lakes that we have on the interior portions of land. And also, during this time for the, for the water to flow, there would have been created these waterways to go into these basins over time and uh, uh, run off into uh, all these uh, different places, as well as the evaporation going on from the wind. And one example of this is the Grand Canyon. And the Grand Canyon, uh, those deposits didn't take millions of years. They were very rapid as the, as the waters cut through all that rock and made their way uh, to, the, to the oceans. And we have all the different sediment layers as that was going on. So the new uh, surface of the earth would now mainly be composed of, of water as it is today. 70% of the world's surface is water. Now through all this, God remembered his faithful people by preserving them through the flood and preparing the earth for a second habitation. And if God could do that, God remembered his people then, then God can remember you and me today in our distresses. When it seemed like the hardships and difficulties of life are, are just kind of overwhelming us like a flood, God is there. He'll help us. He'll help us through those times and bring us safely through to the other side. He delivers us today. He delivers us from our sins and from the difficulties of life. But often... When we come into a time of hardship, he doesn't deliver us as quickly as we would like him to. And here we find another lesson from the flood. In verses 6 through 14, we find the faithful patiently wait for God's deliverance. So let's take a look at it. Now, verse 6 through 10, uh, we have a, a, a description given to us of him sending out a couple of birds. But we need to be thinking about the whole time scenario. So let's remind ourselves of that. First of all, the first 40 days, torrents of water spewing up from beneath the earth, sheets of water spilling down from the heavens. And the earth is completely inundated in those 40 days. It rises up at least 20 feet above whatever mountaintops there were at that time. And it prevails for a period of 150 days. And all the while, Noah and his family and the animals of the earth are waiting. They're going about the, their duties, their chores. Perhaps the Lord caused uh, some kind of hibernation to occur in the lives of some of those animals. And for five long months, they're, they're, they're probably feeling 
for the first 40 days, the violence of the waters, and then things calm down some, and yet they're confined for five months. Well, uh, what happens then? It came to pass in verse 6, at the end of 40 days, that Noah, now, now we're in the 10th month, okay? Let's see, let's back up here. Yes, verse 5, we're in the 10th month on the first day of the month. Now, it started in the second month, so we're in uh, around month 9 or so here. So it came to pass at the end of 40 more days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. And he sent out a raven which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. And he also sent out a dove. Okay, so uh, as they're going about their duties on these five months, one day, all of a sudden, the ark comes to rest with a thud. It's not floating around anymore. It's not moving anymore. Maybe they were glad of that. I don't know if they ever got seasick or what. But uh, it's run aground on the mountain size. And what would you be thinking if you'd been, you know, forced in that uh, space, even though it was a large space? Well, finally, we might get back on dry ground. But alas, they have to wait on the Lord to dry up the earth. And another two and a half months of waiting passes by. And then... Noah sends out the raven in verses 6 and 7. Now, it doesn't tell us specifically why he did that. Perhaps to see, you know, what was happening, but it doesn't appear that the raven ever came back. Now, the raven is much larger than a dove. It's um, a more powerful bird. It could fly perhaps longer than the dove. It's also a carrion bird and an unclean bird. So the raven is sent out. The raven actually can live outside the ark now because of a bird of carrion. And you know what it's eating, don't you? It's eating all those dead carcasses that might have still been floating on the water or on the mountainside someplace. And some believe that there's symbolism there uh, that, that the, 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 the raven... Uh, is a sign of the removal of the earth's past impurities. It doesn't come back to the ark. So Noah then sends out a dove in the next few verses. And uh, he sent the dove out, verse 8, to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. So now that's his purpose. where We're going to find out uh, when the ground is firm enough for us to go out and begin to populate the world. And we're going to use uh, this clean bird, this dove that could be used for sacrifices and see what what happens as a result of this. So uh, he sends the, the, the dove out and we're told in verse nine, but the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot. And she returned to the ark, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So we have another connection with Noah's name, don't we? She could not find a resting place. So she had to come back into the ark. And uh, God's people can't rest until the, the uh, floodwaters completely recede. And then they could go out 
and uh, be blessed of God. So again, we've got that connection here of Noah's name, a resting place, and uh, uh, nothing can happen until the floodwaters are gone. So Noah waits another seven days. Now he's waited 150 days and then 40 days. And he's continuing to wait, to wait, to wait. But this time, something happens. Verse 10, he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent the dove out from the ark. Then the dove came to him in the evening, and behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth. And Noah knew that the waters had receded from the earth. So here is a sign of plant life. Necessary for the animals, uh, necessary for man. And she found someplace, um, a, a sprouting olive twig. And uh, I understand from some of the reading I did that an olive tree can actually produce leaves when it's inundated. So this may have been the very top of an olive tree. So Noah understands that the floodwaters are beginning to recede to the place where it's going to support life on the land when we get out. Uh, So new life is sprouted. It won't be long before they can disembark. But he patiently waits another week. He waited, verse 12, another, yet another seven days and sent out the dove, which had not returned to him anymore. So now the dove has found a nesting place. The dove doesn't come back, and it's getting very close to when we can come out of the ark. But now Noah has to wait till the land dries. And he's waiting, he's waiting, he's waiting. It came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month that the waters were dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. So he's looking out. Now he's he's, uh, elevated there on a mountainside. So the higher up you are, the quicker things are going to dry off. He looks out, he sees that this land is dry, maybe it's still a little bit muddy. But they're still waiting for this all to end. And he has to wait again until the second month and the 27th day in verse 14. And he removed the covering of the ark. He looked, indeed, the surface ground. And we're not sure what this covering is because it's not the same word as the door that was on the side of the earth, of the ark. Maybe it was some kind of a hatch or something that would let them get out on the deck and, and, and look and, and spy around. But at any rate, we've come to verse 14, the second month. Now, when did the flood start? It started in the second month, on the 17th day. Now it's the second month of the next year, the 601st year on the 27th day. That's a year and 10 days cooped up in the ark. It's even worse than than a year of COVID-19 where we feel cooped up, but at least we can get out and do some things. They couldn't even get out for, for a few seconds. They're stuck in there all this time. But even then, when we come to this 27th day of the second month, Noah still doesn't go out. He doesn't go out until God tells him to go out. And this is characteristic of the faithful. Their willingness to wait on God for their deliverance. 
There are many times in life when we may pray and we may hope that the Lord's going to end our suffering, our trial, our temptation, whatever it might be that we're going through that, that feels like you know a flood is just overcoming me. But we have to wait on him. We have to keep trusting in him until he sees us through. And it's often hard to do that, to wait on the Lord in his direction. But it's always necessary. And we have to understand that he's trying our faith as we're waiting. And he's increasing our patience. And he'll help us to forbear. As Isaiah exhorted, But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. And so these people, as they're waiting for the Lord, are doing the right thing. It may be tough. It may be hard, but they know God's going to bring them through. Now, that leads us to the next thought here, and that is this. The faithful obey the Lord's directives, and they worship him for his deliverance. We see this in verses 15 through 20. So first of all, in verse 15, we see that the faithful obey the voice of the Lord. They they obey his directive. Verse 15, on this day, uh, a year and 10 days after the flood starts, then God spoke to Noah saying, go out of the ark. And I can imagine, thank you, Lord. It's been way too long. And out they go. Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing <clears throat> that creeps on the earth so they, uh, they may, that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth and get things going all over again. So he waits until the Lord's word. Now, remember, the Lord invited Noah to come into the ark with the Lord. He obeyed. And he now commands Noah to go out of the ark. And again, Noah obeys. This has been typical of Noah all throughout this narrative. He's followed to the T every directive God has given to him. When God came and said, I'm going to destroy mankind because of his wickedness and his evil, he believed him. When God said, build an ark, he believed him and he did what God said. He built the ark. He gathered the food. He brought in the animals. He entered the ark. He patiently waited through this year and 10 days uh, of the flood receding. And now God says, you can go out and he goes out. What an example he is to us today. God will preserve us. He'll bless us as we obey his commands. But the world that Noah now enters is completely different. It's changed. Little remains of what he had known. As we suggested earlier, the surface of the earth was drastically different. He'll find that out over time. It was barren of life except for what God preserved on the ark and what was starting to grow again from the uh, the fauna. But it was fresh. It was new. It was clean. And is that not a picture of new life in Christ? When a person becomes saved, their whole outlook on life changes. The world in which they live is totally different in their viewpoint now. 
We enter the ark of salvation to escape the wrath of God upon our sin. But when we come out on the other side, life is completely new. You're a new creature. And we have a fresh start to love and serve God. So as Noah proceeds from out the ark, safe and sound, how can he not thank and praise the Lord? And that's what we see in verse 20. Noah goes out, verse 18, he goes out with his sons, his wife, his son's wife, and with all the animals. And then in verse 20, Noah built an altar to the Lord, took of every clean animal and of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So the faithful worship the Lord for his deliverance. Now this is the first mention we have of an altar in the book, well, in in the whole Bible. Now, we can assume previously that there may have been altars. We know that uh, um, Cain and Abel brought an offering to the Lord. It doesn't say they brought it to an, uh, an altar, though. And so the first thing that Noah does when he comes out of the ark is he constructs an altar, a place where he can make a sacrifice to God this is something pre- probably has gone on previously, but now in this new world, that's the first thing we see him doing. And he thanks God for keeping his promise and delivering his, his uh, family. And this indicates something to us. It indicates that even before the coming of Christ, uh, who is the fulfillment of that promised seed back in Genesis 3, God expected humanity to worship and serve him. And this was their duty, their responsibility to their creator God and now their savior God because he brought this family through the flood. And the offering of sacrifices symbolizes atonement for sin and the worshiper's trust in God. Now, let's take a look at Noah's offering. He took some of all these clean animals that he had brought in, seven uh, pairs of each, and he offered them as burnt offerings to the Lord. Now, the whole burnt offering, when you get to the book of Leviticus, was significant because it was a dedication offering, a consecration offering. The person who brought that sacrifice to the Lord would burn everything except for the skin of the animal. It would be completely consumed. And what that did was to show uh, the Lord that you were totally dedicated to him, that your life was his. And so Noah is coming to the Lord and saying, Lord, for preserving me and my family, our lives belong to you. We will serve you. We will do your will. So he's committing himself to the Lord. Now, in this action, Noah is also a priest, a mediator on behalf of his family and future humanity. And we're going to see similar actions of offering things up to the Lord in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Uh, eventually come to the book of Exodus and the laws given to Moses. The sacrificial system begins. Uh, the priesthood is initiated. And all of this is a shadow of good things to come in the Lord Jesus Christ, who will become our sacrifice and our high priest, both in the same person. And he'll offer himself up for the sins of all humanity. 
So we, like Noah, must constantly offer up our praise to God for delivering us from the penalty and power of sin and then helping us to live a life pleasing in his sight. As a matter of fact, you remember Romans 12, 1 and 2? That exhorts us to offer our lives as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable in his sight. So we're kind of like a whole burnt offering, only we're not dead, we're, li- we're living because of all that God has done for us. And this type of offering is always pleasing to the Lord. That's the other side of it here. So we see in verse 21 and 2 that the Lord accepts the worship of his faithful ones. And here we see the uh, response of the Lord to Noah's sacrifice. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. And here's another word play on Noah's name because the verb to soothe in Hebrew is Nahoah. Noah, Nahoah. So it's related again to this man who's offering these things up to, to, to the Lord. And God is soothed, he's satisfied, he's comforted as he smells the smoke of the offering ascending up to him. I don't know about you, but I, I, every time I, I go to a steakhouse, it makes me think of this. Because as that smoke ascends, you can, you can smell it, the aroma of it. And it's pleasant to God when these offerings are, are made to him. And, and we enter in here and we get a little glimpse of, uh, of God's response to this. He's, he's pleased with this offering. And in this particular case, and, and again, when you come to the, uh, the book of Leviticus, you see this phrase repeated over and over again. It's a soothing aroma when the offerings are made to the Lord. That means he's pleased with them. He accepts the offerings. And in this case, the Lord is comforted over his pain uh, about the human condition and the need to have to destroy Uh, All the people he's allowed to come into the world. And he's satisfied now that his wrath has been assuaged and this never has to happen again. And then we enter in a little bit here as as the, uh, uh, the quarter of heaven is raised a little bit and we get to, to hear what God's thinking. In verse 21, then the Lord said in his heart, he said to himself, and Noah hasn't heard this yet. He'll hear all about this in chapter 9 as the covenant is revealed. But our author gives us a little hint of what's going on in the mind of God. <clears throat> and this is what God says, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although, even though the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. In other words, he's not going to destroy man again. The curse here is not referring to the curse that was on the ground in the garden, but the curse he put on humanity because of their sinfulness. He's not going to curse the ground or destroy the earth again because of that again. Even though man has not changed in his inner condition, he's still a sinful creature from the earliest age. But the Lord says he will not do this 
again. And of course, the day is coming when uh, we can be forgiven of all these things and put right with God again. He goes on to say, nor will I destroy every living thing as I have done. Now, it's clear in the word of God that a day is coming when this current world is going to be destroyed. It will be burned up with fire and God will create a new heaven and a new earth. But uh, all of his people, the faithful ones, are going to go into that new world and they're going to populate it. So it's not exactly the same thing going on here. He's not going to destroy every living thing ever again. His faithful will always be with him. And then he makes this statement in verse 22, which is a promise to us in every generation. And that is that the earth as it came forth from the flood, as long as God has ordained it to remain, is going to remain. As long as he's ordained that to happen, life's processes are going to go on. They're going to be regular. There's going to be a time to plant. While the earth remains seed time and harvest, you're always going to have a time when you plant the seeds in the ground and a time when you can harvest uh, the full-grown grain. That's always going to be the case. Now, obviously, there are times that happen in parts of the world where there's a, a famine, uh, and, and, and that part of the world, it's not going to happen. But in the rest of the world, it will. He goes on to say, there's always going to be cold and heat. Climate change. My goodness, the climate changes? You know when the climate changed, when it began to change? After the flood. And God was the one who ordained that. And uh, aren't you glad that uh, every day is not exactly the same. There's a little bit of a change. There's a little bit of a difference. It's something that we appreciate. And it comes from God. And God says there's going to be winter and there's going to be summer. There's not going to be, uh, uh, you know, uh, a, a nuclear winter. And there's not going to be, um, a, 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 you know, the earth going up to the point where it's just going to melt. It's so hot. So are you going to believe... Uh, what what is proposed today about uh, man-made climate change, are you going to believe the word of God? God promises things are going to pretty much stay the same. And thank goodness uh, the earth has warmed up since the ice age or we would be in big trouble. If it warms up one degree every hundred years, I think we can live with that. So folks, it's the flood that produced the climate change, not humanity. It is God who controls and regulates the climate that we're used to and that we appreciate. And as one commentator said, there is no place for Mother Earth in biblical ideology. Earth owes its powers, not her powers, to the divine command. As much as some would like to think that we can destroy the Earth, they're dead wrong. It's not going to happen. God promises that it won't. So that's the other side of the story. That's God delivering his people as he promised. So let's draw a couple of uh, applications here. First of all, are you among the faithful, like Noah, who take God as word, believe what he says? All that happened to Noah in this scenario is a picture of salvation. God delivers us from the flood of his wrath 
through one person, Jesus Christ. He provides a way of forgiveness and a new life through the sacrifice of Christ. Have you personally trusted him as your Savior? Have you put your faith in him alone as your deliverer from the condemnation of your sin? Then there's going to be times that you're going to face trial and tribulation and difficulty and some experience that comes suddenly upon you like a flood. And in those dark times, you have to remember that God has not forgotten about you, that God remembers you, that God knows what he's doing, that God has a purpose in bringing you through that period of time. And you have to wait on him and trust him to deliver you and be patient because you'll end up coming out in a better place than what you started. And then, uh, is obedience a characteristic of your life as it was Noah's? Because if you love the Lord Jesus, he says, keep my commandments. And that's an evidence that you do love him. So is there any area of your life where you're resisting his will? We need to be obedient like Noah was. And finally... Are you offering up the sacrifice of praise for everything God has done for you? That ought to be a daily thing. Be assured that he is pleased and satisfied with you as you give him the honor and glory he deserves in your life. Heavenly Father, we're thankful again for your word and for what it teaches. We're thankful, Lord, you have kept your promise for thousands of years and you've never uh, completely flooded the earth again. We understand, Lord, what it's like uh, for a local flood to exist and the devastation that comes from that. But it ought to serve as a reminder to us, Lord, of, of the one flood you brought that devastated the whole old world full of its sin and wickedness. Lord, help us to be a people who repent of our sin and come to Christ as our, as our Savior, that we might escape that kind of wrath. But Lord, as we do so, help us realize that you are a God who will deliver us not only from our sins, but from all the difficulties of life if we'll keep trusting in you and obeying your word and doing your will. We know, Lord, we need the power of your spirit to do that. And as we do, Lord, we, we thank you for the promise that says you're satisfied with these offerings. So, Lord, uh, bless us and encourage us with these words today. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Be patient.